you're in menopause and we haven't corrected the hormone imbalance, your treatments aren't going to take as well. So, you know, it can often be quite worthwhile looking at your hormone balance to improve your skin texture, wrinkles. So firstly, I want to welcome the new listeners to the show and also I'm very grateful to you long-term listeners of this podcast for supporting the show. I'd like to hear from you. Is there someone that you would like me to interview or is there a topic that you would like me to do a solo episode and kind of deep dive into the research on? You can let me know by heading over to the platform you're listening on and leaving a review and in there writing in what you'd like to hear from us on or who you'd like us to interview and we will do our very best to fulfill that request. Hi friends, in this week's podcast episode we're going to be taking a deep dive into hormones and specifically when you might need to think about things like hormone replacement therapy. We dive into the differences between bioidentical and body identical hormones, uh, the different forms of estrogen and progesterone that you can use and what the critical window is amongst a whole host of other issues. So get your notepads out, this is going to give you a really good whistle-stop tour of how to optimize your health and your hormones. I'm sitting down with Dr. Sohair Roked, who is one of the most experienced bioidentical and body identical hormone doctors in the UK, who believes that hormone balance is one of the foundations of health and well-being. She has treated thousands of both male and female patients in her career. She can currently be found at the Omnia Clinic in London, but she also sees patients remotely via Zoom. And she is absolutely lovely, as well as being incredibly knowledgeable. So without further delay now, let me introduce you to the lovely Dr. Sohair Rokhead. So Dr. Sohair, it is such a great pleasure to have you on the show today. I'm so excited to actually have been found an expert in hormones here in the UK. I think my my listeners have been waiting for this for a long time. Uh, So I'm excited to, to interview you today. And first of all, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What, um, I know you're a general practitioner uh, at, at, at your heart. Um, what brought you into kind of hormones and hormone therapy and made you specialise in that initially? Sure. So before I was a GP, I actually worked in psychiatry and I've always been really fascinated by mental health and the effect the mind has on the body. And then I went into general practice just because I thought, um, you know, I might, you know, be part of the community and see people and their families and things, which hasn't quite worked out in general practice. Um, But one of the things I found in general practice, and even looking back on my experience in psychiatry, is that people often come in with issues and you do a blood test and you say, oh, the blood test's fine. And the person's like, yeah, I still have the symptoms. So what do you want me to do about it? And basically, if you can't find it on the blood test, just tell them to leave, basically. Um, And what I found when I started learning about hormones is that hormones, in, in my opinion, is like the foundation of health. So it can account for so many different symptoms that people experience, non-specific symptoms that cause like a bit of a heart sink for a GP, so things like fatigue or mood issues or aches and pains and um, headaches and things like that. And and generally, you know, as the GP, be like, well, I don't know what's causing this. I don't know what to do. And the more I learned about hormones, I thought, oh, there's a hormone imbalance going on and that's the issue. So I just became really captivated by it. Prior to that, I thought it was just like menopause and that's it. But hormones can actually affect you at any stage of your your life. 
and the symptoms can be more subtle. Uh, but yeah, it's really important to make sure you've got a good basis in that. That's certainly not something I was taught in medical school. So I just found it really interesting and fascinating. A lot of women listening to this will, you know, will really kind of connect with that. Because I know from my own experience, we were talking offline before the show, had so many hormonal issues and actually they were just sort of pushed to the side so you know it started in my teenage years and um I was sort of you know just told that the menstrual cycle disruption was normal part of puberty which I think you know it can be in the early stages but then having this very heavy bleeding very extreme you know um, abdominal pain that would you know leave me lying there sort of writhing and things like that really the prescription that was given to me was the the birth control pill by the yeah. even though I didn't need birth control and I think that's that's a shame in many respects because investigation wasn't really done. Um, and when I got to university, I, t- I came off birth control for a year and had no periods. But mm-hmm. I went to see my my mom's gynecologist at the time. And the, the kind of view taken was, well, we need to worry about your bone density, which I think has since been proven uh, that birth control doesn't help improve bone density. I was promptly re-prescribed it and not any no investigation done on the basis that it wasn't really anything to pay attention to until I decided I wanted to have children. And at that time, I was, you know, reading law, pursuing my career, so it wasn't relevant. Um, and But my own experience really was that the birth control pill doesn't really mask some of the symptoms, but it didn't actually stop a lot of the things happening because by the time I wanted to have a child, you know, my ovaries were highly uh, polycystic, you know, they were covered in little cysts. And I remember having to have ovarian drilling to actually, uh, which is incredibly painful to kind of encourage that ovulation. Why, Why do you think the, the system, I guess, sort of, it almost, it appears to let so many women down? Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think it's uh, quite multifactorial. I think that um, I think things are definitely improving now, but historically, um, I think women's health has always been slightly marginalised. And certainly, when I was doing GP training, and that was like say 2010, and um, things have really changed since then. The messaging was very much like if somebody wants HRT tell them they're going to get breast cancer and then if they still want it that's fine but just document you told them you they were going to get breast cancer seriously yeah but like things have definitely changed since then we know that that's been disproven now but yeah I just feel like uh you know there's so many things if you get into it that you know uh from uh, pregnancy care to postnatal care uh just being put on the pill for any old period problem that anyone could have the stance is always just take the pill um, or live with it or it's part of being a woman and you know you've just got to deal with it um, and then up until very recently it was like impossible to get HRT and obviously that's changed now dramatically which is wonderful and really good news um, but you know there's just so many things like um, women who have an irregular smear and have to go for a colposcopy uh, which is an invasive uh, procedure aren't given any pain relief um, you know, again, it's just maybe another inequality between men and women sometimes that, that women experience. So when men have vasectomies, they're given loads of pain relief. Um, so I just think there's so many things like this. And it takes time to change a system. And I'm not flagging up the NHS or GPs or anyone because it is a very, especially these days, it's a very hard system to work in. But what I was finding for myself is that it was very hard for me to provide the quality of care I wanted to provide within the system and what was available to me. 
And that's why I started seeing patients privately for hormone issues. Um, and then that really took off because there was a need for it. But I think obviously if you've got a great GP who's open-minded or any GP who's listening to your podcast, um, you know, they're working in a hard system. But, um, but you know, I think there has to be the onus on the individual, unfortunately, to learn about hormones and and uh, do that. So I certainly wasn't taught a huge amount about hormones in my training. At medical school, yeah. And also yeah. I think doctors are not taught that much about nutrition either, are they? You know, No, actually, no, I don't remember any training on nutrition maybe that's changed now as well and of course that's the foundation of health really isn't it mm. I very much felt it was kind of up to me as the patient to kind of go and do the research and I was practicing as a lawyer so you know when they linked PCOS with insulin resistance and told me I had that and prescribed metformin I then I mean I think what led to my research was the fact that I just from a gastrointestinal perspective couldn't stomach metformin mm. so I was busy, you know researching like what does this mean what is insulin resistance at the time you know it wasn't well people weren't talking about it 20 years ago. So I didn't know what it was. And I was trying to figure out, could I change my diet? And actually I had tremendous benefits when I did that. And I think, as you say, that the private setting allows you in the functional and integrative medicine to focus much more on the kind of health as a whole. Um, yeah. And that's really where I want to kind of dive in today. Um, let's yeah. look at women in, as you say, I mean, they, we, we go through so many changes, right? We have we have any kind of gynecological problems like we've been talking about there that, that may occur. Then we have pre-pregnancy, we have during pregnancy, we have postnatal, and then you might repeat that a few times like I did. And then you think you're on the home run and then you're going to hit perimenopause. <laughs> yeah. so it feels like this. <laughs> it's definitely not easy uh, along the way. But when we're looking at perimenopause, you know, I come at it from a kind of metabolic health perspective and also fitness and bone density and all the lovely lifestyle things we can do. But I know that many women um, do need to have uh, hormone therapy alongside. And I think it works so, so well as an adjunct when you've got both working together. Um, I think a question would be, how do you know when you need to start hormone therapy and what testing should you be doing and how regularly? So that's a great question. Um, first of all, I'd like to say I really agree with your ethos of doing the lifestyle stuff and nutrition and exercise, managing your stress. Um, all those things are really important. And if you were going to take hormone replacement therapy, it's probably going to work better if you're doing those things as your foundation. So that's totally the right approach to it. But when would you seek help? Well, what I would always say is that it's very personal. But I guess the main thing is when it's having a huge impact on your quality of life. So if you've noticed your cycle is a little bit different, either longer or shorter, often a sign that things are changing in your hormonal system. Um, but if you're having symptoms that are impacting your quality of life, and what I mean by that is that you're no longer sleeping as well. You're having brain fog and you can't focus at work. A lot of people say to me, oh, I notice I'm very snappy with my children and I don't like being that way around them. It's not a nice interaction between us, but I can't control it. If you feel quite low or depressed and it's not due to any other reason, and of course, if you're getting hot, but normally that's quite a late change in, in perimenopause. But I would say that it's probably worth seeking help because you know, we as women are often taught just to like put up with stuff. Oh, it's part of being a woman, you know, all this sort of thing. But I, I don't really agree with that. So that's against my ethos. I think, again, that's another way of, of, you know, making women feel bad about wanting to seek help or better themselves in any way. 
And, you know, again, if you feel that these things are really impacting you, seek help. You can speak to your GP. Um, people come to see me often in the perimenopause, but up until very recently, we couldn't get help from your GP until your periods have completely stopped. And again, often but before your period stop is the worst bit. That didn't really make any sense to me. So it's good that GPs are evolving in terms of their treatment now. In terms of hormone testing, that's not something that's recommended on the NHS in nice guidance, because they say your hormones vary all the time. There's no point testing it. However, as someone who's been working in this field for about 10 years now, if you take hormone tests at a certain point of your cycle, which if you're having a regular cycle, it's normally in the second half around day 21, you can definitely see patterns. And hormones do change all the time. They don't change like minute to minute, day by day. You know, it kind of follows patterns over the first week of your cycle when you're bleeding, the second week when you're leading up to ovulation, just after ovulation, and then the week before your period. So the week of your period and the week before, the hormone levels are probably gonna be quite low. So it's really quite interesting to see what your hormones are doing in the third week of that cycle, because that's when after ovulation, your estrogen starts dropping a bit and your progesterone should be going up because biologically, that's when the lining of the womb should thicken so that a fertilized egg can implant. But even if there's no fertilized egg and you're not going to get pregnant, the progesterone in itself has some really great effects. So it's really good for harming it's good for managing stress, feeling less anxious, getting better sleep. And on the vanity point, good for your hair, skin and nails, which we all do care about. These things are important um, because a lot of women say in menopause, you know, oh, I look in the mirror and I don't know who that woman is. And, you know, that's a horrible feeling when you lose your sense of identity physically and mentally and emotionally. So all these things are important. It isn't just vanity. It's part of who you are. They can be quite scary when you no longer know who you are. You feel like there's a change. Um, but I often do my testing in the second half of the, the cycle around the third week. And I'm looking for the imbalance between estrogen and progesterone. And of course, I'm also looking at testosterone. That we know can drop from your 30s on. And testosterone being a man's hormone, it's still really important for a woman in small quantities for motivation, focus, concentration. Um, get up and go. It's not just libido, although that's also important too. It's really good for your brain functioning. Um, so, you know, like you said, you used to work in law. Uh, you know, I, you know, it doesn't really matter what job you do. But, you know, if you notice in your work, oh, I can't focus as much. I'm making mistakes, and that's putting me on the back foot of work. Well, surely it's worthwhile getting this checked out so you can do it. And like I said, if you're not getting on as well at home with your partner or your your children, again, worthwhile. Going, look, I don't want this to impact family life. I want to be able to enjoy family life and maybe getting things checked out then as well. Yeah, thank you for that. I think it's so important. And I love what you were saying there about the kind of conditioning that women have been given. And it's all the way through. That's the thing. It's sort of put up, isn't it? And I think yeah. you notice it even in pregnancy when I remember thinking when I was practicing and I was pregnant with my first child, I couldn't remember what I was doing unless I wrote it down. But you just yeah. written off, oh, baby brain. You know, and it's so easy, just these off-the-cuff, you know, sentiments that are kind of issued all the time. And then you just get used to, well, I just put up with it. Okay, that's how it is now. That's how it yeah. is. Whereas it doesn't have to be. And I think that's... No, not at all. And I think we are conditioned, you know, to be uh, women, to be martyrs, you know, and be like, mm. oh, well, that's 
this is how it is for a woman but you know you know we're, we're really moving on in every other area of our life you know technology and things like that and if you look at what a woman does now in her 50s you know a lot of the patients I see have busy jobs or young families or both well you know 50 50 years ago was really old you wouldn't be doing any of that you're like an old granny you know that's that's like laughable now that you would consider a woman in her 50s like an old granny who's not expected to work or do anything or of course you don't want to work that's fine but even then you might be just enjoying your life you're on vitality you know maybe women want to travel and do things with their partners and things you know I just don't think that we should accept this and and I think the rhetoric is really changing around aging for women which is great and HRT there's new evidence showing it's really important for your heart health, your brain health, preventing dementias, increasing the bone density. So even just not from the whole, oh, I want to like feel vital and have more energy. Well, from a health perspective, as we're living longer, HRT can be a good idea. Mm. Yeah, and I think from, from the reading I've done as well, there's kind of a critical window almost that is a really more time yeah uh, in terms of when you're beginning to get symptoms and your cycles really really starting to sort of drop off um and then possibly if you've left it and you haven't addressed it immediately in those first year or two following menopause am I right I think that seems to be the window yeah. that women should be paying the most attention to in terms of getting that, that yeah that's it's the optimum time really and you know what I'd say for for most women is like you know you don't have to like rush off and you know, do a hormone test immediately or anything like that. But, you know, from your early 40s on, I'd say to start tracking things so that if a change is happening, you're aware of it sooner. So track how long your cycle is. But not just that, like like I was saying, the mood around your cycle, sleep, do you get more hot? You know, are you a bit more irritable? Can you not focus as well? All these things are really important. And um, we, you know, actually these days starting HRT before you're in menopause can be a good idea when when things are changing. And that's what I've always done with my patients. But it's recently just being done with NHS doctors now as well. So as soon as you're noticing changes, then perhaps you might want to go and, and get a test done or just speak to your GP about it and see if there's anything they can offer to help alleviate symptoms. And one of the things I've noticed here in the UK is there doesn't seem to be... Um much support for just prescribing progesterone in the early stages and oh yeah definitely not yeah. no and I, I think that's a shame because if you're not so. ovulating for example and you have some anovulatory cycles yeah and I noticed that with PCOS right you don't always ovulate but yeah actually on those months I do feel a bit more anxious I do feel different yeah and I think it's a shame and and it doesn't seem to be widely supported unless you go and see a, you know an integrated medical practitioner yeah totally yes you're so right and Basically, in terms of progesterone, it's only very recently that um, the more body identical progesterone has been used within the NHS, which is called Eutrogestan, and it's it's really good. But it's quite a high dose. It's a menopause dose, like 100 milligrams. And that's great. But sometimes for a woman, a woman in the earlier stages who's noticing a few fluctuations of her mood and her sleep around her cycle, 100 milligrams might be a bit too much. So sometimes we need a, a body identical dose at a, a lower dose, um, a bio-identical dose, you know, maybe 50 milligrams, 30 milligrams. I, I personally take 40 milligrams uh, before my period. Um, and, and that can kind of really help with the mood, the sleep, the anxiety, 
um, and just kind of keeping the PMS at bay. But like you said, that's really not common in the, the UK at all. No, and I think it would be, it's nice for women to be educated on this and hopefully we're we're, we're uh, helping yeah. to do that just so they can go and get that ahead of time because I think definitely so many women they just they feel as you say they have the mood issues they don't want to be irritable with their children but they're also feeling really really anxious and I yeah. think often they, they're not aware that it's that perimenopause yeah. that's causing that change because they think about you know the things we've heard about so much which is all oh, these terrible hot flushes and throwing the duvet off and can't sleep with my partner as you say that comes quite a bit later yeah it does um, often yeah, yeah. progesterone other, sneaks out the back door yeah the other thing is conventionally the progesterone is only really used to protect the lining of the womb when you use estrogen so if women have hysterectomy they're often not given any progesterone um and obviously the synthetic stuff that's just there to protect the lining of the womb but a body or bioidentical progesterone can help with all those things you mentioned the anxiety the sleep bloating hair skin and nails so sometimes a, a small amount can be useful even in a woman who doesn't have a womb, if it's bio or body identical, obviously there's no point giving something synthetic because that's not going to do anything. So I think that um, in terms of progesterone in the UK, we're still quite behind on how we can actually help alleviate symptoms. It's not just there for womb protection. Mm. And what about, you mentioned a couple of times there about the skin and I've seen you post on Instagram talking about hormones and the skin. So let's start there with progesterone. How is that benefiting our skin? Well, both progesterone and oestrogen have positive effects on collagen production and skin elasticity. And of course, that's something you, you know, you notice in menopause, like the blush, all of these wrinkles coming on and all that sort of thing. And um, a lot of women do have aesthetic treatments. They're very common these days, you know, things like Botox or seeing a practitioner who specializes in things like that. And I think that's absolutely fine. But if you're in menopause, and we haven't corrected the hormone imbalance, your treatments aren't going to take as well. So, you know, it can often be quite worthwhile looking at your hormone balance to improve your skin texture, wrinkles, strengthening your nails. Hair loss is a huge thing I see in clinic. And it's, you know, really quite distressing for people when they notice their hair's thinning. I think it's definitely worth looking at the hormones. And progesterone in particular is great for hair which is why when lots of women are pregnant, they have really lovely glossy hair mm-hmm. and glowing it's skin. Yeah, it's due to the progesterone. So it's a really important hormone for hair and skin. Of course, you don't need as much as when you're pregnant, um, but, you know, a little bit can go a long way. And also um, in terms of progesterone, I'm just curious whether you, what about uh, people often talk about progesterone creams? Do you think they're any good or do you just simply advocate? taking progesterone orally or sometimes it's used in suppository form isn't it? I think generally orally and suppository forms are probably better and the oral one probably has more evidence that it converts into the metabolite that helps with sleep and I think generally if you're in full-blown menopause and like I said we need to protect the lining of the womb against the estrogen perhaps the cream progesterone isn't the best idea unless someone really can't tolerate um, the oral But I think if you're having a cycle and you wanted to try some progesterone cream around your cycle, we're not worried about thickening of the lining of the wounds. That would be completely reasonable to try it. Okay, great. Um, So in terms of uh, testing, then let's have a look at this, because I think this is where 
people get confused. And I think there are some quite big differences I've noticed as well from looking at tests between the Dutch test and uh, blood testing. So from my perspective, when I look at the Dutch test, it tends to be helping uh, clients optimize their pathways with estrogen, for example, to make sure they're detoxifying it effectively and that we're yeah. kind of channeling it down the right route. And then I can help them make dietary modifications. However, a common point of confusion is why does my estrogen look so low on the Dutch test and yet it looks normal on my blood test? So I was hoping you could uh, clear some of this up and because I think people do get confused and a bit worried about it as well. Mm, yeah. So I think, you know, the um, optimum would be if you can do a blood test for the oestrogen maybe and um, also do the, the Dutch test uh, if possible. Because I think the, the key, um, there's lots of good things about the Dutch test, but the key things is that it does look at how you're metabolizing the oestrogen. That's really important in terms of the pathways and then breast cancer risk and things like that. Um, also, there are three types of oestrogen and the blood test measures estradiol, as does the Dutch test. But the Dutch test also looks at the other two, estriol and estriol. Sometimes your estradiol can be quite low. You've got lots of estriols. You still have estrogen. It's just going down a different pathway. Um, the other great thing about the Dutch test is that it looks at the cortisol. And then sometimes you can have a very good blood level. But if you've got a, a, a lot of cortisol in your system, it's almost like it's overriding it and you're not getting the full benefits of what you're seeing on the blood test. So that's why I think the cortisol is a very important factor as well to look at. If it's very low or extremely high, that could be having a negative impact on your, your hormones. Um, but yeah, if I, um, obviously it's also good to listen to the person's symptoms. So if you're having a lot of symptoms and then, you know, it's showing that it's quite low on the, um, the Dutch test perhaps you're not metabolizing things as well as you should be um but if you're not having any symptoms and it's low and the theorem's okay well perhaps we'd leave that for some time but it's normally to do with the metabolism and in fact maybe taking more estrogen isn't the answer it's just about improving your pathways mm. and that's where the Dutch test is really helpful yeah yeah very much so and I think that um the link with cortisol as well with progesterone as well I think is really important because you're we want our adrenals, don't we, to be picking up that production post-menopause. And if we're highly, yeah. highly stressed all the time, um, then that isn't necessarily going to be the case. Definitely. And I don't like giving too much progesterone to people who are really stressed and having like irregular cycles, perhaps, or, because there is this thing known as the progesterone steal, where you give more progesterone, it just converts to more cortisol. But actually, we're probably better off working on the adrenals first with lifestyle changes and supplements and then see if we still need the progesterone. So, again, it's not just about like dishing out hormones willy nilly. It's also about looking at what's the, the root cause of what's going on here. You know, is it that stress is having a really negative impact on your female hormones? Is it thyroid? What can we do in terms of your lifestyle if diet isn't so good? And then if we still need to add in a bit of hormones, Let's just do that then. Because I do believe less is more in terms of hormone therapy. Yeah, minimum effective dose, right? Like for everything yes. really is ideal. Um, and with the estrogen, obviously this is not available on the NHS for those people listening. The Dutch test is not used. Um, no, so lots of things we've been talking about, I, I am aware, and not necessarily things you can get from your GP. Can't get progesterone free. We can get laughed out of the door. Um, you know, <laughs> sometimes you get... 
Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes get testosterone if you're in menopause, but probably not if you're in perimenopause um, or still having a regular cycle. You can't get the Dutch test done. Your GP is not a huge, well, not that your GP is not a huge advocate of, of doing blood tests for menopause, but they're told not to. So they're going to be very reluctant to do that because the powers that be don't really recommend it. So this is one of those times where you can do, like I said, tracking of your cycle and you'll get loads of information. Or sometimes if things are really quite extreme, it is about taking control yourself and going, you know what, I am going to seek help from someone who can help me with this issue. And then maybe in the future, your GP would be able to take over prescribing. I see lots of people who do that as well. And for somebody who actually like has the budget to spend and they want to kind of really take a deep dive and get this um, kind of bioidentical formulations for them. When you're looking at estrogen, if you did some um, testing, blood testing initially, and you saw that estradiol was low, um, would you then, uh, for someone who has that budget available, take the extra step of looking at, well, how does this patient metabolize estrogen? And are their pathways optimal before prescribing extra estrogen? So not always, but I, I do sometimes. So it kind of depends on the person in front of me and what's going on for them. The first thing I will say is that I don't often prescribe estrogen to a woman who still has a regular cycle. Because generally, if you're having a good regular cycle and a normal sort of bleed, you're probably making tons of estrogen, you're okay. And sometimes taking more estrogen can make some of the symptoms worse. It can get more irritable or you know, um, feel a bit more brain fog even or feel hotter if you're already making estrogen. So quite often, the first hormones I look at are progesterone, testosterone, again, something that's not licensed, a, a, a precursor hormone called DHEA, that can then get your body to make a bit more estrogen and testosterone naturally. And pregnenolone is another one of those precursors. Things like pregnenolone, DHEA, they're just over-the-counter supplements in loads of countries. But in our country, it's an unlicensed medication, which means it's not made by a drug company and you need a doctor to prescribe it who's got specialist knowledge in this field and most importantly, knows what to do if you get negative effects from it. And that makes sense. You don't want to be seeing someone who's never prescribed something before and then doesn't know how to handle it if there are any negative effects. So, you know, it always makes sense to see somebody who's got experience in, in what's going on for you. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think looking at the pathways is a good idea. I had mine done quite a few years ago now, and I do not um, process my estrogen in the right pathways. So that's something I can now work on. And even now when I'm not taking estrogen, just metabolizing my own estrogen, I think that's an important thing to, to know about. So I think it could definitely be worth having it checked, even if you're not necessarily wanting to take estrogen at this moment in time. One of the things I've seen um, a few people won't worry about is when they look at some of their Dutch test results and they look at the 2OH, which is obviously the pathway we want it to go down. Yeah. And then we have the 4OH, which can cause the DNA damage. And then the 16OH, which is kind of almost a Goldilocks pathway, I think, isn't it? Where it does yeah. support bone density. And then some women will see their 16OH really low and, and, and be like, well, that's not good because what about my bone density? And obviously there are other things at play in terms of bone density. Yeah. I haven't really seen anything in the literature around how you can actively try to increase your 16OH. And I was curious as to your view on that. Yeah, it's a tricky one, really. So, you know, I, I do it on the traffic light system. I go, the 2OH is green, it's good. Um, the 4OH is, is red, bad. And then the 16OH is neutral. Um, 
so obviously we want more in the two and the 16 than the four because the four is the one we definitely don't want um like you know we were saying lifestyle changes are a huge so you know if someone isn't exercising i think exercise is a good idea always a good idea for bone density anyway um having more cruciferous vegetables in the diet um and i think uh you know certain supplements i, I do sometimes use so uh, if someone's got a, four, a high 4-OH, I look at things like DIM, calcium deglucurate, but also resveratrol, which is an antioxidant. That's why we say to, you can have a glass of red wine and it's it's good because it's full of resveratrol. Um, you know, I think resveratrol is a very nice hormone balancer as well. Um, and I would normally ask them to try that maybe for about four months and then maybe recheck because uh, things don't change that quickly in the hormone balance. So I wouldn't repeat that for four to six months, really. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And with the testosterone, um, you mentioned their kind of lack of motivation, mm. or kind of not really connecting too well. Um, is that are those the symptoms that you feel women should be looking out to that might indicate their testosterone is a bit low? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we always think of sex drive as as a testosterone symptom, which it totally is. Uh, but the other things are maybe things you notice first, like I'm not as motivated and, oh, it's a lot harder to do things in the gym than it used to be. Um, you know, I'm not seeing the same results when I exercise and diet. So that's a big one. Um, definitely the brain fog as well. So I think it's definitely worth considering those things as well and thinking about testosterone then. And what about women who are a little bit pro-androgenic? So they're on that index where they tend to favour the more pro-androgenic pathway. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit more nuanced for them, isn't it? If they're totally lacking in motivation and things. I mean, I know, for example, with me, you know, with the PCOS, one of the things I really have to work hard with is my skin health. I have to work mm. really hard to avoid yeah. breakouts and acne and and you know dairy is a huge aggravator of that yeah um zinc helps but you know then when I'll test my zinc and it's at good levels you don't want to kind of go overboard particularly interaction mm. things like copper um and also um you know I've noticed that you know staying away like managing my blood sugar has a big impact on those breakouts and things yeah um I'm curious yeah if you could just elaborate with any tips for women who struggle with things like like that I know it's, yeah. it's pretty common yeah so you've done a great job of explaining it you know like we were saying earlier lifestyle is the foundation so you know what are we doing in terms of um, exercise what are we doing in terms of diet and the supplements and things like that because sometimes I talk to people about their testosterone I'm like you know your levels on the lower side I said however I know you're really worried about your skin and hair loss so perhaps this isn't the best thing for us to be bringing in at the moment you know, maybe we can try and improve things in other ways first um, with the as a foundational things we talked about and then see if you just need a very small amount. I think it's also about dosing. And as we said earlier, you know, using that sort of like minimum effective dose. I think that's always my way rather than start high and then bring it down. No, I'd rather start on a low dose and build it up because um, I just think it's better for the person. It's better that it's working with your body in that way. Mm, yeah, very definitely. Um, and how often, if someone's taking bio-identical hormones, so if they've come to see a practitioner like yourself, um, how often does that dose then need managing? Because obviously that's all made then, we're not on the NHS 
uh, body identical hormones where then you're doing a prescribed dose by a, a compounding pharmacy how mm-hmm. often do those need tweaking um, and how long do you do you usually keep women on hormone therapy for okay so um, I prescribe both body and bioidentical hormones and I'd say in terms of dose tweaking you know both of them could be be tweaked and it's very much on how the person's feeling but then also being guided by some of the testing because you know, there are rough guidelines for what your levels should be to help improve your bone density, protect your heart, protect your brain health. So if someone's feeling great, their levels are quite low, I'd say, oh, look, you know, maybe we want to increase it slightly. Even though you feel good, I want you to get the physiological benefits of the hormones you're taking. So um, generally, uh, at the beginning, sometimes I have to see people every sort of three to four months to get things right. But then normally when things are good, it's every six months. And I've got several patients I've been seeing for like eight, nine years. And I just see them once a year because they're just so stable. And they know what they're doing. They've been doing this for a long time. So I know that there's a problem. They'd get in touch with me sooner. Oh, and you did ask in terms of how long I'd leave someone on their hormones. So I've always said this and the NHS has just caught up. Um, I don't believe there's any reason to take someone off their hormones if they're feeling well and if we're doing regular types of testing and that testing is all good and normal. So that testing would be um, a pelvic ultrasound scan and their mammography or breast screening, um, also having the the annual blood test um, every sort of 12 to 18 months as a maximum push on that. Um, And if everything was going well, I see no reason to take them off their hormones unless they want to come off them. And of course, that's personal preference. But there is now research that the NHS is advocating women staying on their hormones because of the improvement it has for your heart health, brain health and bone density. You can just stay on it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's my understanding, actually. So I'm I'm glad that you've uh, clarified that. I think one area that is still um, a bit confusing for people uh, and I'd just like to to see your opinion on this, is if you have missed the opportunity, so you've transitioned through menopause, you didn't go and seek help, you're now in your, and this is a sad reality, I think, for some women, that they've gone into their 60s, they haven't had any hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. My understanding is that's when beginning hormone therapy can be a risk factor, and you might yeah. be better off trying to make these lifestyle modifications and really focusing on those. But I'd love you to clarify from your Yeah, definitely. You, you, you're spot on there. Uh, there is that optimum window, probably within five years of starting the menopause. And definitely, um, you know, maybe I, I've seen women as well, you know, since all the positive press for HRT come in and said oh can I start hormone therapy and I'm like oh, well you're 65 I'm not sure that's the uh the best idea at this moment so we definitely look at uh lifestyle factors um and other things we can do to help balance things in their system um it is sometimes a very uh personal thing because uh I have a patient who's got a very strong history of dementia in her family and she's had some testing done um, and, you know, it's looking like she has the same sort of genetic picture and she's, she's on some very low dose bioidentical hormones that we monitor on a regular basis. Um, and she understands, you know, we had long discussions about the pros and cons. It certainly wasn't the first thing we did. Um, but for her, she felt it was a personal decision that she would want to try some low dose bioidentical hormones to help prevent this risk of dementia. So 
you know, I am open to having conversations with people, but I certainly wouldn't recommend this that everyone in their 60s start taking HRT just because there's a quite a high risk of things like um, clots and strokes. Obviously, we don't want that for people. No, for sure. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, with dementia and the risk, um, obviously, we see, I think the research is showing improved um, outcomes in women who do take hormone therapy yeah. in that critical window period. Are there specific forms, you mentioned familial risk there, specific forms of dementia that applies to, um, or is it just dementia in terms of its umbrella term? So it's normally the more sort of um, vascular dementias or ischemic dementia. So the same sort of pattern that goes on in your heart and the heart disease can happen in your brain. Um, but then let, let's not forget uh, the risk of sugar and the inflammation sugar and diabetes causes as well. So mm. I think that's a really important thing to get under control too. So you see, this is why I'm not necessarily an advocate of just blankets giving everyone HRT. I think that there's definitely things um, that the individual needs to be looking at in terms of, uh, and this woman who I was speaking about, she's done all that stuff. You know, she's got a good diet, she exercises, she's working on managing her stress. She knows that's the weak point um so it wasn't like I just want HRT um it's, it's a case of I'm doing all all my bit I'm taking the supplements and doing those sort of things maybe I could add this in, as an adjunct and I think that that's definitely worth consideration um but yeah there's lots of different types of um uh of uh dementias but uh again you know HRT is part of that but there are lots of women who haven't taken HRT who haven't gone on get dementia so you know the lifestyle factors and, and genetics and things like that do play a part too I'm so glad that you talk a lot about the lifestyle factors because I think that just making women aware you know there's so many women I think they they're so busy in their careers and work and their families and everything that's going on that they don't take the time that you've been saying to exercise to eat well to yeah. reduce their stress to optimize their sleep and they go and see their medical doctor they get a little bit of a boost in, initially from HRT yeah feel good and then they come and they're like HRT doesn't seem to be doing the trick like it's not improving I've still got all this belly fat and it's like yes. it isn't going to improve that right it's going no. to help if you're doing all of the things alongside totally yeah we're on the same page there yeah. uh you know it's an adjunct and I think it's great but you know you know it's like if someone comes to see me and they're like um, you know th there is an increase of weight gain for a lot of women in menopause because of the way metabolism changes um, and just the way you store fat in a different way. And people come and go, well, I haven't lost any weight. And I'm like, well, what are you eating? You know, are, are you calorie counting in any way? Are you exercising? And it's not a magic thing where it's just going to drop weight off you. That's not a thing with HRT. But if you're doing things, it's going to make it more effective. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your time today. I think you've cleared up so many questions that people have in their mind. Where can people come and find out more about you, Dr. Sahir, connect with you, um, find out about your practice and, and the consultations? So there's lots of information on my website, uh, which I'm sure you'll you'll link to, which is www.drsahirrocares.co.uk. Um, I'm, I'm quite active on my Instagram if you just want to find out more about my views on hormones and things like that. Um, I have a podcast called it's your hormones where I often talk to a friend or a patient about their hormonal journey. Um, and uh, I have a book called The Tightness Cure, which is lots of tips there for energy, uh, medical things and also lifestyle things you can do to improve your energy. 
Amazing. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure interviewing you. No, no problem. Really good to speak to you. Thank you for listening to today's show and for your interest in health optimization for high performance. If you're new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that you can get a free health score and report complete with personalized recommendations on how to optimize your sleep, nutrition, fitness, and resilience in the top link in the show notes below. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Links to everything we talked about are also in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe for more.